transpires that every single chuppah that many people don't pay attention to that I want to call to your attention and that is that the bracha Bede Pri Hagofen is recited twice the Mitzadah Kedushin makes a Bede Pri Hagofen then he says a long bracha called Bechaz Edison and he doesn't drink the wine he gives the chasna the kal to sip from the wine then the chasna puts the ring on the kal's finger and of course says Hariat Mukidashisli, but Tabazu, which is of course the Khassan marrying the Kala. Then there's an interruption. Someone reads the Ksuba, the marriage document, which is rabbinic and not biblical, it seems, for the most part. And then a second glass of wine is filled, a second Bayapiagofan is made, six more brachas are recited for a total of Sheva brachas, seven brachas. After which, again, only the chasna and the kala drink from the wine. And it seems like an extra bracha, Bairi Why two Bairi The chasna and kala don't make a alagefin in the interim. There is a very short passage of time. They're standing in the same place. Why two brachas? But of course, in typical Jewish fashion, a question is answered with a question. Have you ever noticed, by the Pesach Seder, you make four Bairi and four cups of wine, when there is no... Alagefen, there's no afterbracha in between, and there actually are some customs that only say two beripiagafens and not four. But in our custom and in the custom of most Jews, there are four beripiagafens recited. Why? And the answer is because this is not a birchas and it's a birchas mitzvah. You're making two brachas or four brachas because you're doing two or four separate mitzvahs. At a wedding, two ceremonies are taking place. First is Adis. Edison in the language of the Talmud is called Kiddushin. And in English it's translated as betrothal. Betrothal is very different than an engagement, although some people confuse it. Because an engagement from a perspective of halacha is absolutely meaningless. Uh, uh, an engagement in a chasinakala is in no way binding and it certainly in no way constitutes a bond, a marital bond of any type. 
Edison, on the other hand, the chosen given the call, the ring, is a marriage. It's a marriage in all of the senses of loyalty and obligation and connection. But after the Edison, there's a second process called chupa. Chupa is you know, making the canopy, saying the Sheva Brachas. And of course, chuppah really is what we call gichot, where the chasna and kala go alone into a room and they spend a certain amount of time and there are witnesses that attest to this private time that establishes a real marriage, an intimate marriage. So you're making two brachas because you're doing two very, very separate ceremonies. In Jewish tradition and history, these two ceremonies were not separated by the reading of a ksuba, which takes about two minutes to five minutes, depending on who's reading. But by a year, when a chosen and a kala met and became what we call engaged, they made the Sudas Edison. They made a feast. At this feast, they would take a cup of wine, like you do any mitzvah over a cup of wine, just like by a bris, and just like by a pidyan abed, and so forth. and Or like when you bench... And the rabbi would say, then he would say, which is the blessing that indicates uh, betrothal. And then the chosm would give the kala a ring, and they would both drink from the cup of wine, and that would be that. The chosm went back to yeshiva to study, the kala went home to make a wedding. Twelve months later, they would would establish a chuppah, you know, same thing, a canopy for poles, I guess. And um, the chosm... And the kala under the chuppah would hear Sheva Brachas, and then they would drink Be'ebriyagafen, they would drink the wine, and then there would be Yichud. The reason these two ceremonies were joined into one ceremony is because of Igun. What happened was, Chassan and Kala would marry each other, then he'd go one way, she'd go someplace else, and then they'd have trouble because of pogroms and expulsions, and they were stuck because they were married to one another in as much as they couldn't marry anybody else, but they weren't married to one another in as much as living together was concerned. So the Chazal, the later rabbis, decided to join these two ceremonies together so there shouldn't be any trouble. They're simply separated by the recital of the Ksuba. In other words, the marriage ceremony as we have it is really not only two ceremonies, it's two mitzvahs. Edison means betrothal and Nisuin means marriage. In other words, Edison is a formal marriage and Nisuin is an actual marriage, it's an intimacy marriage. A husband and a wife get married, they live together. A husband and a wife who are betrothed don't live together. They're formally married, but not actually married. In other words, and let me give you another idiosyncrasy that happens at Chuppas, which I don't know how halachically necessary it is, but believe me, I'm not the authority on it, so I, I'm, don't hold me to it, but I'm going to say it anyway. At many Chuppas that you go to today, they'll announce that two people are witnesses, and they'll say, to the exclusion of all others. Now, I don't know if that's necessary to say, to the exclusion of all others, because you're actually identifying two witnesses. Once you identify two witnesses, it's automatically to the exclusion of all others. But, you know, people love to be extra religious. Why are they saying to the exclusion of all others? Who cares if there's more witnesses? Of course, the answer is because if one of the additional witnesses would be unfit to be a witness because he's not from, because he's a relative, it would discredit not just his own power as a witness, it would discredit the witnesses that are kosher. So people say, at a chuppah, to the exclusion of all others. We can debate whether it's necessary or not, but this has become, so to speak, the, the custom. That's what a marriage is. That's what a betrothal means. A betrothal means, I am married to you, you are married to me, to the exclusion of everybody else. The 
technical term, the biblical term for the formal marriage is edison, arusa, betrothed. In the Shas, in the Talmud, in the Gemara, the word arusa is substituted by a different word, and that's the word kedushin. Kedushin actually means sanctity. And the argument is that the formal marriage between a husband and a wife, although it's not an actual marriage, it's not actual living together in intimacy, is called Kiddushin, sanct, sanctified, or an event of sanctity. And the Talmud, the Gemara, Masechet Kiddushin, explains what it means. That when a man marries his wife formally, quote, the Asala Akula Halma Kehektesh, he prohibits her to anybody else as something which has been given to God. When you give something to God, it's God's to the exclusion of everybody else. And if somebody else partakes of it, it's called me'ila, it's called an abuse, and there's a consequence. A husband and a wife who are formally married are mukudashim. They're sanctified to one another, in other words, to the exclusion of everybody else. So there is a formal marriage, which is called kedushin, and then there's an actual marriage, which is called nisuin or chupa, which results in yichud, intimacy, in living together. Now, how would we describe these two steps in a marriage, the formal marriage, which is really more a boundary, saying, I'm married to you, you're married to me, so you can't marry anybody else. And the second step, which is an actual marriage, a period of intimacy, where the people actually live together as husband and wife, where they're actually married. In other words, why the Torah divides this up into two ideas is an involved discussion, it's not simple at all, and I don't want to even begin to explore the halachic side of it. But the realistic side of it, the actual side of it is that in a marriage we go through two steps. A formal binding step where marriage doesn't happen actually but the two people are bound to one another formally and absolutely. And then separately there's an actual marriage. Can't we find a way of describing these two steps um, that's philosophical? or that's even spiritual, that can speak to our heart, that can give us a lesson that we can learn in our real lives. And I think there's a very, very clear and obvious um, case to be made. And that is, the Gemara says, and the Rebbe quotes it in the Lakut HaSichas, When it comes to the Yetzahara, which means temptation, lust, children, and a spouse, you must first push away with the left hand and then embrace with the right. Push away with the left and embrace with the right. The Yetzirah, temptations, children, and a spouse, first you push away and then you embrace. What's the logic here? It doesn't make any sense. It seems reasonable, certainly when it comes to children and a spouse, to first embrace and then push away. When it comes to the age that I guess we all understand why well, you have to first push away. Some would say you should push away second also. The answer is very, very simple. Torah teaches us a lesson that unfortunately our civilization, our society has completely neglected. And the consequence of this neglect is a complete breakdown in the sanctity of marriage and the responsibility of marriage. And that's why we have such an incredibly high divorce rate. And that is that when people establish deep relationships, the first thing those relationships need are boundaries. Not the first thing the relationship needs is passion. 
the first thing the relationship needs is boundaries. There's nothing in the world you're ever going to love more than your children. There's nothing more destructive in the love for your children if that love doesn't have boundaries. And the boundaries are set first. The boundaries are, for example, such exotic things as a bedtime, cleaning up after their meals, speaking respectfully, dressing themselves, making their beds, brushing their teeth, must I go on? That's not being mean. That's parenting. But that's, parent, that's not love. It's certainly not overt love. That is establishing criteria, rules in the relationship between the parent and the child. Because only when there are rules is the love constructive. Unconditional and unbound and unbinding love is very destructive. We all know it. You spoil your child. You don't teach the child responsibility and the work ethic and so forth. Because the love between a parent and a child is so deep, so powerful, it must first have boundaries. And Titus says the same is true with a spouse. The most powerful, the most urgent relationship people experience in their lives is the relationship with their spouse. So the Titus says, Smile doyche, the marriage to work, set boundaries. There are religious boundaries, and I would propose to you that there are also psychological boundaries. There are also personal boundaries. A husband says to a wife, this is my line. A wife says to her husband, this is my line. And, uh, you know, the magic word is respect. You have to respect your spouse's boundaries. As religious people, those boundaries are the laws of Taras HaMeshpacha. Those boundaries are the laws of Tznias. The laws of Taras HaMeshpacha, the laws of Tznias, don't create a wedge between a couple. They actually create the framework for the most powerful connection. The Rebbe would say to people all the time that part of the reason that people have issues with shalom bias is because they violate those boundaries. And the Rebbe says, the quote is that when you are together, when you're not supposed to be, you won't be together when you are supposed to be. When you're close, when you're supposed to be distant, then you'll be distant when you're supposed to be close. The Torah's rules are true on a spiritual level, on a religious level, and even on a psychological level. The boundaries, the boundaries of tzniyas, the boundaries of tzniyas, the boundaries of respect, create the framework for this incredibly intense love not to become a flood, a deluge, self-destructive uh, end, but a streamlined, focused, sustainable love. And it doesn't diminish the love, to the contrary, it enhances it. It makes it actually much more potent, much more deep. So I want to propose, and this is only my proposal, that perhaps a way of explaining the two stages in a marriage that the Torah designs marriage as first having an intimate, a formal marriage and an intimate marriage. And in historic times, this was done in two separate intervals of time. Now we join them together under one ceremony, under one chuppah, but they're separated, the two separate mitzvahs. Edison, which is also called Kiddush, the, the binding relationship between a husband and a wife, which is a formality. I am married to you, you are married to me, as the quote goes, to the exclusion of all others. And only afterwards is there a second stage of the marriage where the two are joined together in, in matrimony, in intimacy, in yichud. That perhaps one way to explain these two steps is to establish number one borders and number two a bond. The borders establish what's outside of this relationship, what's inside of this relationship. And then moreover, within the framework of this relationship, what are going to be the borders? The borders of Tarasa Meshpacha, the borders of Tznias, the borders of mutual respect, the borders of understanding limits, and so forth and so on.
And I believe this is a, a, a credible commentary on the halacha that says that a marriage has two steps. Kedushin, you know, to the exclusion of all others and to the exclusion of what's inappropriate within the framework of that marriage and then Nisuin, actual marriage. Chassidus teaches us based on a medrash that the relationship between God and the Jewish nation has two steps. A formal marriage, Edison, Kedushin, again the quote that, so to speak, makes the point to the exclusion of all others, a Jew and God to the exclusion of all others, we now not have any relationship with any other gods, having a relationship with other gods is like uh, having, uh, bringing a tzara, another spouse, another principle into a relationship which is very destructive and very unhealthy and very wrong, and then an intimate relationship. And there are various Mamari Chazal who explain it in various different ways. For example, um, the, I think it's a Pasuk, right? The formal marriage between God and the Jewish nation was at Mount Sinai. The actual marriage, Yichud, intimacy, is when the Beis Hamikdash was built. But there's also a Medrash that says that Matan Teda's Edus, when God gave us a Teda, we were formally married, in quotes, to the exclusion of all others. The intimacy, the actual marriage, the Yichud, is when Mashiach comes. The love between God and the Jew and between the Jew and God will be overt, manifest, expressed when Mashiach comes. Until Mashiach comes, the issue is, the struggle is, the design is to the exclusion of all others. We have a formal marriage that involves a lot of responsibility, a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment, a lot of what we must do and a lot of what we're not allowed. Serving God, studying Torah, doing mitzvahs as the mind is going to go into the particulars Torah, Tzedakah, Din, Merachamim, and Amuna, those are the framework. That those are the, the those are the binding rules that establish the quote exclusion of every, everything else and everybody else. Mashiach comes, the the intimacy actually manifests. And of course, you scratch your head and say, why do we got to wait so long? And it's a good question, and I don't want to answer it. Let the Rebbe answer it. But the answer is, before the intimacy can be, the intimacy must be established on healthy footing, and the healthy footing is the formal marriage. The healthy footing is the condition. The healthy footing are the borders. And when the borders are established, we will have chuppah, we'll have yichat, we'll have the, the second stage of the marriage. So we're learning a maimer. And you may have noticed that last week we read most of the maimer, which means that this week we're going to read, relatively speaking, a small portion of the maimer. But I really had no choice. I had to divide the maimer the way I did because last week was one idea, this week is the conclusion of that idea, a second idea. And what the Maimir argues is that in Edis, in Kiddush, in the initial step of a marriage which is about borders, which is about establishing, in quotes, to the exclusion of all others. I am married to you, you are married to me, to the exclusion of all others. There's different levels of loyalty. It's as simple as that. Some people establish a bond with another person, a husband with a wife, to the exclusion of all others, and the loyalty is entirely consistent. And other people struggle with it. Now, I don't have to mean this in the actual physical sense, because we're talking to Tzniyastika people who keep the Shulchanarach, it goes without saying, I'm not talking about that. But when you talk about what this represents in our relationship with God, this is quite plausible, quite logical, quite reasonable. 
there are Jews, there are times that the nature of our relationship with God is, in quotes, to the exclusion of all others in a consistent and in a healthy and a constant way. There are other times that our formal marriage to God, in quotes again, to the exclusion of all others, it struggles. It's hard. Why? It's gullous. This Maimed addresses two degrees, two levels of betrothal. Two Jews living at two different times and two different circumstances. One has a loyalty to Hashem, has a sense of to the exclusion of all others, which is a struggle. It's hard for them. Consistency is difficult to maintain. And certainly awareness and uh, loyalty, the feeling of loyalty is hard to maintain because it's difficult to gull us. At other times, and another person has this formal, this betrothal type of relationship with God, which is really more about the borders to the exclusion of all others. It's not yet about intimacy, and yet it's consistent. It's constant. It's unwavering. And you may recall that this, these two levels of dedication, of commitment, of maintaining the rules, of following the borders, of to the exclusion of all others, one which is healthy and consistent and the other which is a struggle, was described in last week's class as being two people who are in pursuit of God. One is in pursuit of God and knows his limits. So he wants to meet God in the courtyard. But his meetings with God in the courtyard are entirely consistent. The other fellow can't even meet God in the courtyard, so his relationship with God is he wants to meet God himself. Now, meeting God himself is much higher than meeting God in the courtyard, but his meeting with God himself is not sophisticated. It's not so internalized. They're not really in a position to meet God himself, so they're just sort of having a, a loyalty, a faith type relationship with God. Those two relationships, and which was last week's class, are going to mirror two levels of, quote, to the exclusion of all and everything other. In the formal relationship between man and God, between the Jew and Hashem and Hashem and the Jew, the first step is Kiddush, the Asala Kula to the exclusion of everything else. There's two levels. Where this exclusivity is a struggle and where this exclusivity is harmonious, it's peaceful. Okay? And of course, it's based on a on the Lukutatera in our passion. Actually, in last week's Pasha, Pasha's not midbar, but it's 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 fine that we're learning it in Pasha's not saying because it's out of Shavuos and it's also connected to Shavuos. That in that Haftoira it says, Hashem says to the Jewish nation, I will betroth you forever. Mashiach is going to come and I'm going to betroth you forever. And of course, you scratch your head and say, When Mashiach is going to come, God's going to betroth us forever. We've been betrothed for 3,000 years. We've been struggling to maintain, quote, the exclusion of all and everything other. Through the most, you know, through thick and thin, through the most difficult times. What does it mean when Mashiach is going to come with Astak Liliyelim? And the answer is going to be, certainly, we, we are formally married to God forever, for a very, very long time. And we have, by the grace of God, and with sometimes great personal sacrifice as a people, as a nation, maintained that loyalty, that to the exclusion of all others. But not always has that exclusivity been so solid, so robust, so predictable, so constant. And the Torah says, when Mashiach comes, that formal step of relationship 
will be much healthier than it's been historically, where we we have this relationship, we have this loyalty, we have this exclusivity, and it's this constant struggle, constant battle. And that's what the second class on this Maimon is going to address. Two levels of formal involvement with God. In both cases, we're not intimate with God. They're not experiencing His love, and He's not experiencing ours. There's a loyalty, there's a dedication, there's an attitude of to the exclusion of all others. One is consistent and solid, and the other is a constant struggle. We're going to begin on line 84, which is where we're holding. And I suppose it's time to get to the Maimed. I've given you sufficient introduction. And here we go. This is the meaning of the Pasuk that says that when Mashiach comes, Hashem is going to betroth us forever. Hashem is going to establish an exclusive relationship with us, in quotes, to the exclusion of everybody else that's going to be forever. Now, last time I checked, we've had this relationship with God for 3,000 years. So it's true, but it hasn't been easy. During the period when the Beis Mitzvah didn't stand, which is the majority of our history. The collective Jew, all of us, are called Sukkas Dovod The hut of Dovod has collapsed. The collaboration, the, the, uh, the cooperative of David that has collapsed, that has fallen. We're, we're in a state of boom and bust. We have better times, we have more difficult times, and I mean this spiritually. Vitomid, and constantly, it's in a state of falling. We ascend, we fall. And of course, a philosopher would say, when you could fall, even when you're the epitome of the rise, you have a relationship with the phenomena of falling. So even our best moments are still uh, tentative, not ideal, because the fact that we have fallen and we may fall in the future means that even when we don't fall, we have a relationship with the phenomena of fall. This is true metaphysically, it's also true actually. In the collective Jew down here, physical people, in our relationship with God, how do we call it? Moods, booms and busts. Sometimes we're very excited, sometimes we're very passionate, sometimes we're dispassionate, sometimes we're unmotivated, uninspired, struggling to find purpose. And therefore, we're betrothed, we're formally married, quote, to the exclusion of everybody else, but we're having a very hard time sustaining it. When Mashiach comes, the Tater tells us, Okim Hashem's, I will raise up. As soon as though then he fell as the cooperative, the collective of King David that has fallen. In other words, it will stand up. It will remain erect. And he adds the word in perpetuity, forever. In other words, Mashiach's coming ushers in an age of loyalty to the exclusion of all others, which is unbreakable. With no interruption, never again will we fall. Moreover, never again will there be the possibility for a fall. Although we're talking about a stage of Mashiach, which is also defined by only a formal marriage and an intimate marriage, but the formal marriage is solid. Which explains the prayer, please sanctify us with your commandments. It's a prayer. Please Sanctify us with your commandment means to say we're not yet sanctified with your commandments. Sanctify us. So the Rebbe observes. There's another statement in the Siddur. On other occasions we say He has already sanctified us. He's already betrothed us. He's already created a, an exclusive bond with us 
to the exclusion of all others. So why say Kadashenu sanctify us if there's already been the Asher Kiddushanu, Shekar Kiddushanu has already sanctified us. And the answer is very simple. Behind all the fear, the answer is we are already betrothed. We are already formally bound to God. And God is formally bound to us. But as it is now, we can fall. We're praying to God. You bring sanctity into this union. There is such that it will be constant. Sanctify us, betrothed us forever. She will have to never be interrupted. Our formal attachedness to God, to the exclusion of all others, should be healthy and consistent. What, what can I tell you? I, I don't think this needs to be explained because we all know exactly what this means and I think we all know exactly what this feels like. You know how it means to feel good about being a Jew, consistent and strong? And we know it feels like to be on a bumpy road. So the argument is, till Mashiach it's a bumpy road. Once Mashiach comes, it becomes, even the formal part of it, constant, consistent. And now that I've moved on to another point, we're at line 90, Siddhala. Remember, the Kedushan stage, the Edison stage, the betrothal stage, is a formal attachedness, not an actual intimacy, that is called to the exclusion of all others. But it's not an actual intimacy. How do you explain this phenomena of a formal and intimate marriage in our relationship with God? And the answer is going to be really tight and mitzvahs. But you see, you can do tight and mitzvahs and not experience godliness. And you can do tight and mitzvahs and in fact experience godliness. If we were to do tight and mitzvahs and experience godliness, that would be intimacy. That would be actual marriage. So long as we're doing tight and mitzvahs and we're not experiencing the light of God, the, the light of godliness, but simply the sense of responsibility and loyalty to the will of God. And we do it so we're loyal to God, we're involved with God to the exclusion of all others, but it's a formality. So the Rebbe says, our formal relationship with God is represented by Yiddishkeit, by Torah and by mitzvahs. And he gives you two illusions. The first is the Kedushan ring, and the second is an unusual concept that today is absolutely impractical, called Maimir, which I'll explain momentarily. What do the Kedushan ring and Maimir have in common? The answer is, both of them don't penetrate you, both of them simply hover. The Kedushan ring is supposed to be round. And they never talked about this. Um, I believe Yudal, Yudalid. Either then or Yudal Kizav Tosh Yudal. The Kedushan ring is supposed to be round. In other words, it's not allowed to have any kind of a shape on the outside other than a perfect sphere. And there's a Kabbalah for that because it has to do with eagle, a circle. The mysticism of a circle is that it doesn't have a beginning or a middle or an end, which indicates an idea that's infinite. What's good about infinite? That it's infinite. What's bad about infinity? You can't eat it. How do you start to take apart something that has no seams, has no boundaries, no divisions, no delineated, no distinctive aspects, just a big circle? So the circular condition ring represents what? We have a relationship with God, represented by a circle, which is an infinity, which means in effect, we have this relationship with God that we're not experiencing at all. Maimir is a ritual that was performed in the process of Yibu, which we no longer practice today because of uh, the various different types of Gezeris. Yibu means that when a 
a man dies childless, his brother will marry his deceased brother's wife. But he doesn't need to marry her. She's, she's called Shemenes Yavam. There's a certain bond between them. It's not, she's not a married woman. There's no din of Gilead Royas. It's Isalav, not Isid. Miser, Kodesh. But nevertheless, there's a certain bond. And he takes over his brother's marriage to this woman. In other words, his brother married this woman. Now that he has died, his brother just takes the place of his brother and that continues the marriage or it establishes a new marriage. Today we do chalitza, of course. Chalitza means you find a way of severing that isalav bond of Shemeras Yavam and after chalitza she can go on and marry somebody else. The chazal, the rabbis added maimah. They say it's not enough. You know, a man dies so his brother just lives with his brother's widow. It's not good enough. He has to formally marry her. How? By speaking words. Maimah means words. And these words constitute the formal stage in the Yibum marriage. Which means to say, just as in a typical marriage, there are two steps. Eidus and Nisuin, a formal step, quote, to the exclusion of all others. And then an intimate step called Yichud or Chupa. Similarly, in a Yibum, this, the Chazal instituted the first, a formal step called Maimah, which is words. And afterwards, there's an actual chuppah, yichud, intimacy, married, living together. And of course, here too, it's the same idea. What are words? How do we say it in school? Words are cheap. It's exactly what the idea is. The formal step of bringing together yavam and yavam is a bond that is defined not by anything that they can feel, but simply by a commitment, by a loyalty, to the exclusion of all others. So the Rebbe says, these two ideas, the circular nature of the condition ring, these two ideas, the circular nature of the condition ring, and the words that are uttered to establish the formal bond between Yavama and Yavama are consistent with the theme of Kedushan, because they only bind formally, formally to the exclusion of all others, but not actually. And in Avoida, this is the study of Torah. You study Torah, you are formally connected to God, you're not actually connected to God because you're not experiencing the Ain Saf, which is behind that title until Mashiach comes and the intimacy takes place. I just want to mention, Maimed is a power of Chazal, of Torah, that's only words. There's, there's a rule in Torah that says words, are, words have no value. If I make a verbal commitment to you, I owe you nothing. For me to make a binding commitment, I have to do an act, which is called a Kinyan, and there are various different forms of Kinyanim. There are rare cases where words carry the power of a deed. And of course the most famous case is When you give something to God, to the Beis HaMikdash, words suffice. If I say I'm giving this to the Beis HaMikdash, it becomes the Beis HaMikdash. Even if I've made any Kenyan, I've done anything behavioral. Because when it comes to holiness, Words have sufficient potency to affect a complete transference of ownership, but when it comes to choyl, to ordinary relationships, you have to do a deed. Yavam and Yavam, through these words, are becoming bound formally, but not actually, and then afterwards it's going to be Yichud, which is going to bring them together completely. So let's now read line 90, and keep in mind the design. The design is we're talking about the betrothal between God and the Jewish nation, which means to the exclusion of all others, even though it's not an actual intimacy. And it's represented either by the Kedushan ring, or by the Maimir in the case of the Yibu. Both of them bind the Jew with God, 
but only formally. On the other hand, but they bind the Jew to God in a healthy way, in a consistent way. The notion of a betrothal and the notion of the words that a Yavam shares with a Yavama to formally bind her to him as the precursor to the Yichud, to the marriage, have the same significance. Kiddushnas de Raisa and Maimers de Rabona. So they can't be the same. But in terms of the philosophical effect, they're identical. They are binding. I am yours and you are mine. To this. In other words, a man dies and has ten brothers. Until one of the brothers does maimir, to a great degree, all brothers are equally bound to that woman. And that woman is equally bound to each of them. When one of them gives her maimir, now it's to the exclusion of all the brothers. Or be in her Indian. Says that I'd like to enlighten this by using a play on words. You have in Pasha's Kisavri. Hashem and the Jewish nation relationship. We favor him and he favors us. The Hebrew word used to denote that favoritism is Amiro. Now normally Amiro means to speak, but in this case Amiro doesn't mean to speak. It means to favor. And as she says, there's no other place in Tanakh where the word Amiro means to favor. So the Rebbe now says, Maimed doesn't mean words. It means to favor, to render exclusive. And let me give you a personal pshatl. If you don't like it, you can harass me uh, on the notes, the comments. Have you ever heard Hungarian Jews daven? I grew up in Crown Heights, full of Hungarian Jews. In the Mai, in the davening, right before Shmanestre, they say, Zekeli Anu, Amru Hashem they don't pronounce it that keli onu v'yomru. They say that keli onu v'amaru. That's how they pronounce it. Now, some will tell you that that's a typical Hungarian mispronunciation. Polish Hasidim have a aversion to diktuk. They emphatically do not follow the laws of grammar because of the association between grammar and the scholar movement. But I thought of this. They say that doesn't mean to speak. Vodo means to choose. We say that we speak. Hashem should be the king of the world. This is just my own personal observation. They're saying is not mispronounced. It's a different word. V'amru means to speak. V'amru means to favor, to, cho- to, to give, to render the choicest. So the Rebbe says, Maimir in Yibum means to render the choicest. And don't forget, to the exclusion of all others. Upirash ha'amata lashen mafil. The word ha'amata means not that you're doing it, but that it's being affected. Our rendering him the choicest is not by something we do directly with him, but something we do to him indirectly. How are the Eisek By learning Torah. You want to make God your choicest? Study his Torah. It's not a direct effect, it's an indirect effect. And that's what the word He'emarto would mean, according to the laws of grammar. And the idea of Kedushin and Maimir is a similar thing. We make our relationship with God exclusive, to the exclusion of all others, through the study of Torah. By 92. But when we study Torah, this bond is only formal and not actual. We're bound to God. He is bound to us. We don't experience godliness. In other words, we're not yet experiencing intimacy. So he says, 
in this formal bond. Which really means the recitation of the words and letters of Torah. Says the Rebbe, it's true that boy revealed within our utterance and studying Torah, is a revelation of the the divine light. But at the same time, it's beyond us. When you study Torah, you are binding yourself to the Yain Sof, but you don't feel it, because it's beyond you. What happens when you bring into your reality infinity? It either destroys you or goes straight over your head. When we study Torah, we're connected to the Yain Sof, but we don't feel it. So it's a formal attachedness to the Yain Sof, and not an intimate one. Take, for example, people who speak words. Now, what is the purpose of words? It permits one to communicate to his fellow. Some people actually have ideas in their head. If you want to share it with your fellow, you need to use words. Are words a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer, of course, is they're both. They're necessary. Words help you transmit an idea, but words complicate. They partially conceal over the subtlety and nuance of what goes on in your own mind. But that's the way it is. You want to communicate, you have to use words. Now, words are a combination of two things. Sounds, different sounds, and an amplification from the lungs that amplifies, that gives air, that blows against the, the vocal cords to amplify, to give loudness, pardon my colloquialism, to the sounds that we're uttering. Ubechinas hanal. I am almost sure that that's a typo. It should be hahevel. The air, the wind, the amplifying aspect of the words that we communicate, is indirect, it's not fully revealed in the idea. When the idea existed in the person's intellect, there were no letters that divided up and communicated the thought. That would contain and limit the things al inyan zeb for this idea and these words. When a person speaks, the choice of words is a containment. It's a limiting effect on the idea as it was understood in your imagination, and it comes forward. from a hidden state to a revealed state in your mouth. So, an idea in your mind. Let's use uh, artistic kind of form. Is a picture. An idea in your mouth is words. When you take that picture and put it into words, you're limiting the picture because the picture can be described in many different ways. What carries the idea from the picture level to the word level is air. The air that amplifies the individual sounds that represent the individual words that are going to form together to communicate the vision it divides the sound and divides the letters. In other words, it provides the energy for the division. And therefore, says the Rebbe, the air of those spoken words, is hidden from or is above, indirect, in comparison to the word, to the neshama. Now, I don't know what the word neshama means in context, but it seems quite obvious to me that neshama means the idea that I'm communicating. There's a very, very important concept found in mysticism that says, that if I share an idea with you, I'm sharing my wisdom. My wisdom comes from my mind. In order for me to share an idea with you, I need to use words. Where do words come from? My soul. In other words, words that are simply vehicles for ideas have a higher source. 
the air that amplifies the words, that communicates the ideas, which seems to be just, you know, from the lungs or from the heart, as Isaiah would say it, have a higher source than the ideas that I'm communicating. So he says, Makif, it's beyond Lineshama, the soul, in this context, soul will be what I'm actually communicating with you. In other words, the peripheral aspect of speech has a higher source. The amplifying aspect of speech comes from a very deep place in the Nishama, and its full spiritual potency remains hidden. As I'm talking to you right now, and I'm exhaling, I'm using oxygen, hopefully what you're getting from me are the thoughts and the ideas that I'm communicating. But the potency that's in the air itself, in the lungs and the oxygen that I'm using to communicate this thought to you, comes from a much higher place in me, from my very essence, from my very soul, from my very heart, if you will. But that you don't get. That becomes lost in the communication. It remains hidden in the communication. It is only through the help of the air and the spoken words, it brings forward a light and a potency that comes from a very deep level in the Nishama. The Hahevel Nasa Levushe Love and the air becomes a representative of that very, very high level of the Nishama. However, the source of the air and the spiritual significance of the air itself, remains hidden in relationship to the ideas that I'm communicating. I'll give you a simple way of putting it. When I talk to you, there's passion. But when I want to speak intelligently, I have to suppress that passion. Because the passion would be on my sleeve. If I'd be hyperventilating, the idea would come out incoherently. The passion is hidden in my spoken word. And in fact, the passion comes from a higher place than the spoken word itself. And the source of this air, of this passion, comes from the divine wind, which is the source of all of the infinite lights, which is the source and the basis for some of that infinity to pass into a person's air as he amplifies the words that he's using to communicate his ideas. So what is the metaphor? The metaphor is I'm talking to you and sharing with you a concept. I'm carrying that concept on sound and on air. The sound and the air remain secondary to the ideas. And the argument of the Maimon is that if I could get at the heart, at the soul of the sound, I will find the air and the sound coming from a higher place from the ideas, coming from my heart, from my essence. But you don't experience it. And of course, what this represents, in other words, the nimshal for this is that we're learning Taira, have an intimacy with God, and don't even experience it. All we're experiencing is the intellect, we're not experiencing the so-called light. You know, I've told this to you so many times in our learnings. The outer dimension of the Taita is the intellectual dimension. The inner dimension of the Taita is the Yain We are privy to the ideas. We're not privy to the Yain Remember the story. The Mechel Zlach was a little boy. He was an Eloi. He lived in Brod. And his father wished for him to join the brother, brother Klois. It was a Shtibel, Klois in Brod, which had hundreds of goyim who learned day and night. And the Michael Zlach of his father told him to go to that yeshiva, to that base medrash, that koil. And there was a magachir, a chaim of tzans, a great gone. So the boy went for a week. He was six or seven or eight. And he comes home after a week. He says to his father, he's not going to the Klois anymore. So his father tells him, you find 
The B'chaim of Tzayin is not to be scholarly enough. He says, no. Tata Zayin Teir is Vidayin Teir. He's as much of a scholar as you. So why don't you want to go to the Klois? When he speaks, I don't see the godliness. I don't speak to see the fire. When you speak, says the little boy to his father, I see fire. Seeing that fire and not seeing that fire is a difference between a formal relationship with God and an intimate relationship with God. So the Rebbe says, Maimur and Kiddushin represent the study of Torah, which binds us formally to God Almighty, in quotes, to the exclusion of all others. But the intimacy is still missing. Line 103. Alternatively, just as Maimur represents a form of an unintimate bond between a Yavam and a Yavama, so too does the Kiddushin ring represent a formal bond between a Chastan and a Kala. It gives her a ring. What is a ring? It's round. What is communicated from a chosen to a kala, that ring, is the deepest connection. But it's not experienced. Similarly, we form a formal bond of loyalty and favoritism to God and with God, as He forms with us. We bring upon ourselves a very great light, an infinite light. From the highest levels of infinite lights, which sanctifies us to heaven to the exclusion of all others. Peter's in other words, a Jew stands prepared and in fact bound to become intimate with God as a human being. Who betrothes a woman. Through this betrothal, through this formal bond, she is exclusively her husband's to the exclusion of all others. Only his. But they're not husband and wife. And the same is true in our relationship with God. The same is true through Torah. Through the words of the Torah we create a favoritism towards God and from God to us. But the air, the passion, the light, the insaf behind that formal bond is makif, is hidden. We become bound and attached to the air of the words of God, and the shifted to be a prepared seat for him to manifest. But it's not yet experienced. So we're formally bound to God to the exclusion of all others, we're not experienced. And that's the meaning of the words. Hashem says, I will bind myself with you in a forever way. That through the study of Torah, the formal bond between the Jew and God, in quotes, to the exclusion of all others, is established in a healthy way, in an unwavering way, in an unequivocal way. This happens when Mashiach comes, when the Beit HaMittah stands. However, one doesn't study the Torah. To bring down this extra potency which is represented by the power of speech. It's as though you're speaking to your fellow, or your fellow is speaking to you, and you're not paying attention. You're not listening. If you don't pay attention, you won't join the thought and ideas of your fellow unless you listen so the words carry the ideas and although the bond in experience is only the ideas the words that carry them are a much higher bond which remains hidden so when the Yid studies Torah he affects his bond to God is his exclusive relationship to God in quotes to the exclusion of others is very healthy very deep and very potent and very strong but if you don't study Torah it's Nebuch. And you'll see soon what the Rebbe's resolution is. Through the Torah, our formal loyalty 
an exclusive relationship with Hashem is healthy and solid. So this is the part. Veiras techli liyelam. Veiras techli betzedek ubemishpat bechesed uvarachemim. Veiras techli behemun. This is a sequence of psukim. It's you know there's songs, popular songs based on these words. These are very powerful words. They're not taira pashas b'midbar. So veiras techli liyelam means through taira. Veiras techli betzedek means through tzedakah, as you see momentarily. Veiras techli bemishpat means through being able to discern judgment. Bechesed of Arachma means has to be an element of compassion on the Rishama. And Veiras Techli is, if all else fails, fall back on faith. That's the person whose exclusive relationship to God, to the exclusion of all others, is wavery, is unsolid. They fall back on Emunah, as we'll see later on in the Bible. Let's go through the steps. 109. In addition to studying Torah. And Torah creates this formal bond, though not this intimate bond. There also must be the redemption of the soul, from the incarceration of the body and animal soul, should not be considered a crippled or blind. In other words, there shouldn't be deficient Jews. We shouldn't be sinners. And this is the opinion of Tzedakah. Tzedakah protects us. They protect us from sin, protect us from all bad things. So when you study Torah and you give Tzedakah, the study Torah creates the bond and Tzedakah keeps it healthy. Which is why the Pasuk then says, I will betroth you betzedek, through tzedakah. is great. brings close the coming of Mashiach. That according to this Maimon, only when Mashiach comes, will there be a solid, formal relationship with HaKadosh Baruch. Before he davened, he gave tzedakah to protect against ill effects, so that when he davened, there could be a good Intimacy effect. Similarly, you study Torah to create a formal bond and you give tzedakah to preserve it. And he continues in line 113, but tzedek is not enough. Over mishpat, judgment, discernment. You have to be able to discriminate. You have to be able to say this is good and this is no good. Passions are never an excuse. The evil crowns, covers over, inhibits the tzedek. Which is why the Torah tells us you have to get rid of evil. That's what judgment is. Judgment is we can't be Jews based on love alone. There's got to be principle. It has to be right and wrong. And some things are no good and must be disposed of. So there's Torah, which creates the bond. Stalker, which preserves the bond. And Mishpat, which cuts away anything which is the opposite of that bond. And then it says, with kindness and compassion. Translates that to evoke great mercies on one's soul, so that the soul's uh, challenges by being in a body and in all the rest of the distractions are overcome by the compassion we show for the neshama. Like it says in Tanya, guys, that you have a zayin and so forth, and that when you show compassion for the neshama, Hashem also shows compassion for the neshama, and God's compassion empowers the neshama. Like it says in Chassidus, who could exceed the Yankov Shabbatas Avram, that Yankov Midas Arachem redeems Chassid. Avram alone is not sufficient. So, if we are going to have a healthy, robust, formal relationship with God, formal relationship with God, we need the study of Torah, Tzedakah, discernment, and compassion. Those four ingredients establish a healthy, formal relationship with God. I am bound to God to the exclusion of all others. And it's not moody, it's constant. Because I learn Torah, which creates the bond, although I don't feel it. I have judgment, I'm able to throw away what is no good. And I have compassion on my soul 
to take it out of its challenges. And of course, the tzedakah that I give preserves it. That is Edison Model A, a Jew who was bound to God to the exclusion of all that that's healthy. Like we had in the last week's shir, you meet God in the courtyard. What about a Jew whose exclusive bond to God is not so exclusive? He struggles. He doesn't learn Torah because he cannot. He doesn't give tzedakah because he can't afford it. He doesn't have discrimination because he has a Yitzhahara that wins frequently. So how does he maintain his relationship with God in quote, to the exclusion of all others? So there's a much lower level. Which is line 117 that Hashem says there's another way to God. Faith alone. Now faith has its weaknesses. But faith also has its strength. Faith simplicity renders it inflexible. Right? A guy's smart, you can reason with him. You can reason him into God, reason him out of God. A person's a simple believer. It's like talking to a rock. So the Jew whose relationship with God is an unsure footing, is not on a constant and a sustained level of formal attachedness to the exclusion of all others, establishes a relationship with God to the exclusion of others with faith alone. The Ainu, in other words, me, and one cannot study. Fagam ish anu he's poor and therefore if any little sake can give tzedak. Afal became still ain mene Allah it's still not impossible for him. Liyeth bechinas kalavarusa to be in a state of ecstasy going out of himself or herself in their relationship with God and being formally bound to God by the hamuna by faith alone. Kadnis kalas we discussed before. Bezbanus mukadali but that if a person can't be sophisticated in his meditations he can be simple with meditation. And when you're simple in your meditation, you don't think about levels and courtyards and rooms and God. If the kulak make lachashiv in relationship to God, all is nothing. God is beyond even the hidden light. So the simple Jew, in his simplicity and in his weakness, draws from God Himself faith. And that's the model of this mime. Two levels of a formal attachedness to God. The first one is healthy and consistent. And the second one, which is weak and precarious, is through faith alone. And I want to add that you know, we're living in goals, unfortunately. And consequently, we uh, are more consistent with the second atheist as opposed to the first. There's a lot to be said for simple faith. Sometimes simple faith, you know, it, it shows the scholars to be deficient. Like the Holy Baal Shem Tev, whose yard site is on Shavuos, would always teach that the Pshitas uh, Vanaish Pasha, the like the Pshitas Ha'atzimus, the simplicity of a simple Jew touches the simplicity of the essence of God Almighty Himself. And um, simple faith, with all of its deficiencies, has a certain hardness, a certain plainness. You know, we call it in the scheme of like Bohemir, Hoi Chebehoi. Rabbik says, Both of these are the exaltation of a, or, or the expiration, the going out of oneself and one's relationship with God. That's only formal. I am bound to God and God is bound to me to the exclusion of all others but I don't feel the intimacy with God. The first person is solid and healthy and constant. The second person is precarious but it's strengthened by faith alone. And ultimately after Mashiach comes and after a very strong bond is established in a formal way there's going to be intimacy. That means we're going to experience the angel of experience the godliness. As the Pesach concludes and then we're going to know God what does no God mean? 
Adam nu chava is a biblical passage which is an allusion to intimacy. The strongest bond, as the Alter Rebbe brings in Tanya chapter 3. It's not a formality. It's an intimacy. It's a real sense of feeling oneness with God Almighty. The Torah describes the coming of Mashiach. We're going to know God and godliness in an intimate way. We'll be totally, totally filled with the sense of God and not simply formally committed to Him exclusively. We won't have any thought, speech, and deed. And forgive me for adding. We won't have any feelings and any tendencies intellectually for anything other than God alone. The Chomach, with other more thoughts of man, and all passions of man, and all wisdom of man, Yom will be filled, Rak Mendas Hashem, only with the knowledge of God Almighty. And this is why we say, that although every Jew has a Chilek in Teirah, we also request, give us our portion in your Teirah. We already have a portion in the Teirah. But currently it's only formal. And sometimes it's precarious. And Mashiach comes, the Chalik we're going to have in Teir Hashem is going to give us because we're not just going to read the words and understand the concepts we're going to experience the Hevel the Ein Sof which is behind those words our lot and our portion will be absolutely and exclusively bound up in the Torah of God and the godliness which is behind it the Jew will be one with God the intimacy of marriage that's the Maimed I suppose the message of the Maimed is very obvious Ultimately, it's important for us to feel a relationship with God. But we must remember that the Rebbe says in chapter 46, whether we feel godliness or not, in Yiddishkeit, we are so special. We're not just people. We're not just creations. We're one with godliness. Like the Rebbe brings in that Tadik. We say, what does Lekei Avram mean? The personal God of Abraham. Through Yiddishkeit, he becomes a Lekei my personal God. I'm not feeling it, I'm not experiencing it, but it's nevertheless true. And if we're not that sophisticated, even in creating this formal bond, we can use a moon, a moon alone.
Dios. 